0: discrimination
1: i'm carrie gillen
0: and i'm megan figueroa and we're here and we're healthy-ish
1: well i don't Ish? seem to have a much of the covid <laughs> nastiness left behind you know i've got other health issues that are boring to talk about
0: <laughs> yes yes the, the norm the uh, normal for us health issues <laughs> that are just kind of around
1: technically mine is new although it probably was around for a while
0: <laughs> yeah, But now I
1: just have to eat so boringly I hate it I hate my life Anyway
0: <laughs> I've been dying to talk to you about The Staircase on HBO Because we both You know, know the story Michael Peterson trial and all that But Colin Firth as Michael Peterson Is really hard for me Because I Every time I see Colin Firth I'm like, that's a British man Oh, interesting. But his uh, his American accent in this, I think, is spot on. Like, I'm actually forgetting that he's British, even though when I look at him, I think he's British. <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, so I I don't think of him as British in this role. He melts into it so well. He does. The thing that I the thing that I have a, a trouble with is he doesn't really look like Michael Peterson. No. My sister pointed out that one of the guys from Scrubs would be a better like the, the mean doctor. Oh yeah,
0: Scrubs. um Dr. Cox. It would be yeah, a better yeah, yeah. physical representation.
1: But I think setting all that aside, he sounds and moves exactly like Michael Peterson. It's uncanny. I know. I'm just in awe of his abilities. I always thought he was a good actor, but this no, is next
0: level. He is perfection. This is Michael Peterson. This is an American man <laughs> <laughs> who is acting the shit out of this. <laughs>
1: you know who else is also
0: really good?
1: Is Parker Posey playing the DA? Yes. Yes. Wow, she gets her, like, way of talking, I think, really, really well. I know. Now, I'm not a Southerner, so I can't 100% judge the accent, but I don't know. Just the way that that particular DA spoke, I feel like she's got that down. No,
0: I agree. I just watched The Dateline again with uh, Michael Peterson, oh, and yeah? she was in there. I'm like, okay, Parker, yeah, this is how the, D- the well, I think, like, <laughs> assistant DA or whatever was like...
1: Oh, yeah, she's, I think you're right. I think she is the assistant DA. You're right.
0: Anyway, speaking of British
1: people... <laughs> According to Newsweek, Prince Harry has dropped his, quote, traditional royal accent and taken on a more, quote, laid-back tone in recent interviews, according to linguistic experts from the language learning platform Babbel. So he's included things like you guys and pop the hood.
0: Pop the hood. (laughs) When did that come up in an interview? Well, of course, like... These are things that I don't question when I say them or hear them. That they're, you know, specific to a dialect. Well, you guys, yeah. But what does it mean, The his royal English? Is that just, like, received uh, pronunciation? RP. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he, I think he probably still has a a very rp accent it's just lessened but if you listen even to the queen the queen speaking from like when she first became queen versus now or more recently i guess i should say cuz she hasn't been in the public in a bit it's not quite the same like that that has already changed over 50 years or whatever i guess it's closer to 70 70 years <laughs> her 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 accent has changed the rp has changed yeah i'm certain that he's mostly still rp-ish yeah yeah <laughs> But because he's saying you guys inside of his accent, it probably sounds very odd.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if this is just something that people are noticing or taking note of because of his like move to the U.S. and all that. Because he's been with an American for a while now. And it just makes me think that perhaps these things have been happening maybe slowly, but happening before now.
1: I doubt it. He was surrounded by people who had, had like, the full RP, and he was expected to behave in a particular way. So him leaving the family uh, was probably what precipitated the change. He wouldn't have the opportunity to change before that.
0: Oh, okay, so you think there's, like, a conscious decision to win are royal to sound a certain way?
1: Yes. There has to be. There definitely right. is. Yeah. There definitely is. There's, like... A, there's this whole code around what it means to be a royal and how you have to behave. And, you know, you, if we want to talk about civility, ooh boy.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not unlike other areas of, or other professions, I guess. Because I know that they do that for, like, on-air personalities or, like, you know, journalists that are on air there's like a code basically a code that they they follow when it comes to how they sound and
1: true but at home they get to sound however they want that's not the case with the royals there's no time for them to like like i don't know if you saw spencer but i think that also gave a, a nice little insight into like just how suffocating it would be uh to live in that family if you were an outsider but if you were in an insider it'd still be suffocating you just might not notice it and so At least as as much. Right. And so when you leave, when you're finally free of it, uh, because you're worried that your wife is going to kill herself, right? Right, right. You're like, oh, wait, I don't have to sound like that anymore. I can, like, I have my own voice. Right. That is probably still, like, affected. I mean, it's still, you know, RP-ish, but it's just freer, looser, (laughs) I'm guessing.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. A big difference is not being able to... So, at work, maybe you're code switching, and that's a whole different conversation. But, like, and then at home, you're able to drop it.
1: Right. right. Yeah, everyone has, like, different registers, right? right? We have our work register. We have our home register. I mean, like, that's normal, but they don't. Right. (laughs) There's
0: no separation (laughs) of church and state or whatever. (laughs) They're work work
1: and home because their job is just to be royal. So, they're always on. And if you're around the queen, like, you're really always on. Right. You know? Ugh.
0: miserable
1: it sounds horrible it sounds really horrible and i i think it's actually bad for them and it's also bad for the rest of us
0: so people actually <laughs> noticing that harry is being a little bit more lax is like a big deal it's like a yeah nap.
1: i'm it's part of it's part of his break with the family like you know everything he does he he breathes and people are like oh, what does this mean for the royal family right. but it's still like because it's the language aspect i do find it interesting
0: Yeah and i feel like i mean the the used example of you guys that is a way to connect on a chiller level than it, you know, what he's used to i am sure so Yeah. Yeah, and and, you know, if Megan was from
1: the South, he might have picked up y'all instead. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Anyway, be free. Exactly.
1: So I thought, um, we haven't done this in a while, but uh, we have an email. Dear Megan and Carrie, my name is Anna, a student from the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. I'm currently taking a class called Lost in Translation, and this past week we discussed the Philly accent. One Uh. source we used was the Vocal Fries episode, How Millennials Are Destroying the Philly Accent. I was born and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia, but even so, before listening to this podcast and learning more in class, I only knew the stereotypical features of the Philly accent. I thought it was very cool that at the end of the interview, uh, led by Dr. Sneller, she asked speakers what they think makes a Philly accent, which can then be compared to the actual features of the accent. I knew that John was a common phrase, that they have a plural you, and that they have a unique way of saying water. (laughs) That was my bad attempt at that. Uh, Listening to Dr. Sneller explain the rules of pronouncing words in terms of a Philly accent was also very interesting. I never really thought about how complex languages are. Side note, I know this does not relate to the Philly accent, but I've heard my peers debate on whether or not Central Jersey exists. Uh, I think it does. I've also thought that the way that... (laughs) I've also thought that the way that people with a Philly accent sometimes speak is rude. However, after learning more about accents in my class and through this podcast episode, I've come to realize it's simply how they talk, so I should not judge. I never knew that there was a Philly syntax, so listening to Dr. Sneller's examples blew my mind. I learned a lot from this episode, and I enjoyed enjoyed listening to it. Thank you. And that's from Anna. Thank you, Anna.
0: Yeah, Anna, I love that email because it gives me an opportunity to talk about Abbott Elementary do you watch it? Have you seen it? No. Um, It's in Philly, and there's this, like, opening scene where one of the teachers, um, the main teacher, I think first grade, she's just first grade, and she's teaching sight words. It's uh, on the board. The sight words are John, and use, and uh, hoagie. <laughs> so it's like these, uh, she says words that they would recognize, or, you know, know. Um, and I thought that was so perfect. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You know, I didn't know about the Philly accent in this way before we talked to Betsy. I can see why people are are so proud. <laughs> you know, that's like one of our most popular episodes ever, right? Because like it got picked up it by is like the a, most popular. Yeah, uh, people in Philly are love a proud their people. Love their yeah, yeah, yes. it's, it's it's amazing. Great. Yeah, Um and Central Jersey. I don't know where I fall on that, because how am I to f- have uh, an opinion? But I guess uh, Bruce Springsteen would agree, right? Isn't he from Central Jersey? I know that Jon Stewart is. I don't remember. Right. I don't remember if Bruce is too. I think he might be.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I, I. yeah, I thought from there I have no, no I can't say, say anything. Matter, but, right. <laughs> but I would still, if pressed, vote yes, there's a Central Jersey, just because some people identify with it. So to me, that means there's something there. Yeah. So today we're talking about how mostly how sexist linguistic mm-hmm. examples are. And so this is kind of, you know, in the weeds of linguistics, like formal linguistics. So if that's not your thing, I still think you should listen because it yes. It's it's it's, it's interesting to see the changes that have happened over the decades and yet how things haven't changed too.
0: <laughs> I I still don't think of it as like a linguistics lesson. I think of it as like Oh my god, look at these examples of how sexist uh, <laughs> humans are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, because there's plenty of women in the, f- the syntax and semantics and yet these these problems still persist. Right. So, right.
0: yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hope you enjoy. Enjoy.
1: Episode is supported by Finding Five, the tech nonprofit that enables academic researchers to create and run online behavioral research studies in the cloud. www.finding5.com. So, their platform is best suited for stimulus presentation types of studies that consist of hundreds of randomized trials per study. They are also a 501c3 nonprofit, so they listen to their users, they don't have any shareholders. Their mission is about trying to lower the technical barriers to
0: transitioning into online experiments researchers can be left to think about like research questions like how my best like what are the best stimuli to present to get this or you know to test this kind of response instead of like having to worry about like where they're gonna host the study if it's reliable enough are they gonna you know you don't want to lose your data so you with something like finding five it means that you have a reliable server and you don't have to worry about like losing precious data
1: they also have their own study grammar for, their, for building experiments. They use academic terms that are already familiar to researchers instead of using programming jargon.
0: They have really nice features like exclusion criteria, and coming up, they're going to have demographics filters. It's
1: also uh, financially accessible because creating the studies is completely free. There's no feature restrictions to the study grammar. Even if you don't pay for a subscription, it's only when you start collecting data that you start having to pay, and it's considerably lower price than alternative solutions.
0: That low fee is just to maintain the operation of the nonprofit and not to make a profit.
1: There's a promotional code for our listeners to the vocal fries. You get a one month pro subscription for free. And that comes with all the premium features and a hundred free participants for the, that one month. And the US server is www.finding5.com and the promotional code is FF dash us dash fries and if you are not in the u.s uh, or close to the u.s you're you might want to use the eu server instead and that is eu.finding5.com and the promotional code is ff-eu-fries and that expires on august 31st 2022 midnight eastern daylight time
0: try to create the study first and then redeem the code don't waste your code until you're ready to run something yes (laughs) So, have, have fun collecting data.
1: So, today we're very excited to have Dr. Hadas Kotek, who is a linguist at Apple who works on data science for natural language annotation projects for the Siri and Language Technologies team. She's also the co author of Gender Bias in Linguistics Textbooks Has Anything Changed Since Macaulay and Bryce, 1997? and Gender Bias and Stereotypes in Linguistic Example Sentences. And both of those are in the journal Language. So welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you for being here. We could talk to you about so many different things, but this one, this is fresh. This is <laughs> these, these articles just came out in December of 2021. And if you're a linguist, you know this problem, even if you don't think it's a problem.
1: Well, yeah. So maybe for those people who might not be like... Deeply enmeshed in what this problem actually is, maybe you can talk a little bit about what a linguistic example sentence is and why it matters for a lot of the field.
2: Sure. A linguistic example sentence is one of the main sources of data that linguists, certain kinds of linguists, I should say, use when they present their arguments and dump their theories. So they're just sentences that are used to illustrate particular phenomena of interest. So, for example, if I wanted to very simply in English illustrate that a particular word order is is acceptable in English, such as, you know, subject, verb, object, I could give an example such as a John ate an apple as such a, as an example of that, that, that subject John and verb ate and object apple is, is fine in English, but something like, let's say SOV, so subject, object, verb, that is not an acceptable word order in English. So we would put a star next to an example such as John and Apple ate. That's not okay. And so these example sentences are used in research. They're used in textbooks and generally in teaching. In some subfields, in particular, in syntax and in semantics and um, pragmatics as well, maybe we, we see these quite frequently. So, why did you want to write these two papers? What were you looking for? Both of these papers are um, an extension of or build on the an earlier paper that was published also in language at the time when we started exactly 20 years earlier. So this is a paper by Moncom Colley and Colleen Brace. And that paper had looked at example sentences in 10 different syntax textbooks that had been published, I think, between 69 and ninety-four and they had an interest in the representation of, of arguments of, of subjects and objects and you know indirect objects and, and things of that sort and example sentences and they had found at the time that there was there were various problems with how example sentences were being constructed. we can't horrifying oh, those problems. Yeah okay sure they're horrifying. So we can say more about what those are because <laughs> yeah. examples they're kind of fun to read if you wanted to to read some of the example sentences that they have as 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 illustrations of the issues. But we were just interested in finding out what had changed. And you know, the original hope was that things had actually changed a lot. And you know, eventually the actual finding is not not very much has changed since then.
0: Horrifying in in different ways. So there for one example, Bill is proud of his father and tired of his mother. It's just unbelievable. (laughs) Okay, that is actually less unexpected to me than something like this. Like, let's see. John's turned on by Mary in tight trousers.
2: Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for all of these, I, the main thing that I, when I present these in, in talks and stuff, I just say, your job when I read these is to imagine what these are trying to illustrate. If you can, try to think of an example that illustrates the same point without that being also the thing. Yeah. What
1: where, where are these two illustrating actually?
2: So I'm, I'm guessing that the first one is trying to illustrate right no brazen or some kind of across the board coordination. Right? Mm-hmm. Bill is pr- proud of his father and tired of his mother. Mm-hmm. And, and the other one
0: Dawn's turned on by Mary in tight trousers.
2: I guess it's, it's the small clouds, Mary in, in tight trousers. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, uh, well, yeah.
0: Right. What are these examples? What's the big thing that, that, they're doing, what is the gendered, the gender roles at play here?
2: So there is, there is a variety of things that are happening and all of them kind of lead to the same conclusion. So um, very generally you find a overrepresentation of men. So twice as often you just will find a male name or male uh, pronoun or um, noun phrase in the example compared to non-male. And actually, I guess this is a good time to pause and say throughout these papers, all of them, including ours, we talk about men and women not right. that is beyond the binary. That is a whole separate conversation. We've worried a lot about this. But as it turns out, the papers themselves that we study just don't go beyond the binary. And so we're constrained mm-hmm. by what they do. Um, so if I say men and women, I, I try I try to be careful and say men and non-men, but really it's just these papers are just too things that are perceived as men and things that are perceived as women, right? Because John wrote a book in an example sentence we don't know John. There is no reason why, in principle, John couldn't be non-binary or even a woman, right? A woman may be named John. But we, we go with the stereotype as well. So we say uh, we classify John as a male argument in this example. Mm-hmm. So that aside, aside, so we just find a whole lot more men than women in these different sentences. We find them in stereotypical uses. So men are the ones who engage in violent activities. They drink beer. They need to drive cars. They read. Turns out women don't read so much. Wow. but women. So men will read the book and the woman will put the book on the, t- on the shelf. The thing that was uh, interesting about that paper and the main thing that's changed now is that in these earlier works, in these earlier textbooks, you got these explicit and suggestive language like Megan was reading. Yeah. Uh, that has gone. That is ma- the main thing that has changed over the past 20 years is that the like obviously offensive examples have gone, but all the other stuff has, changed, has stayed. So kind of making it up. harder to see. Yeah. So if you wanted to go and read the Macaulay and Bryce paper, they have a whole bunch of example sentences. It's a, it's it's fun in the, you know, despairing type of fun way that you might <laughs> read things.
0: Right. So the egregious examples are gone, right? Was what you're saying. Was, was yeah, what so yeah. so in,
2: the, yeah. uh, in, in our newer papers, the main key difference between the earlier work on Macaulay and Bryce and what we find is that suggestive and explicit language is mostly gone. There's, there's a tiny bit, but basically it's gone. But all of the other stuff is still there. So we still got a huge skew um, of about two to one. So every two arguments that are male, you get one that is female. And men are more often subjects and women are non-subjects. Men are the ones who engage in violence. In particular, they're its subjects. If you get a woman, it's more likely to be an object in, an, in a violent sentence. Kinship terms are one of the huge ones. So women are most often described as someone's wife or mother. Men are very rarely described as someone's father, husband, brother, and so on. Oh. Men have occupations. Women don't have occupations as often. I and mean, this is also true in the earlier papers. So, you know, men will be whatever, bankers and and uh, CEOs and, and doctors and women, not so much. All of these things have stayed the same. So they are consistent over You know, that earlier papers looked at textbooks started starting in 69 that were published starting in 69. Our most recent textbook and most recent paper was 2017, I think or 2018. So there have been many, many years where this has basically stayed the same.
0: Right. So okay, so the explicit language is we've moved past that, but it's still the binary is reinforced even to this day. That correct so
2: the binary yeah so it's harder to, to say something interesting about that right so we don't really find uh, singular theory any or references right. of that kind and beyond that, you just kind of don't know, right? It's not easy to know when an example says John read a book. If, what is the identity of John, right? Where right. you, you you have guesses about that because of stereotypical understanding of how of, of names and, and who they are assigned to most commonly. In, in kind of the same way, we we don't go into this in our paper, but John is by far the most common name. So we don't go, do go into that. John is by far the most common name that is used in examples. There aren't really names that are not white sounding. So there are, it's, you don't really get names that, that sounds or signal that someone is black or that someone is Latino or that someone is Asian outside of kind of a couple of names that we always use that Chinese people will tell you are not actually real names. Like, like what? What's an example? Sun. So, <laughs> so Jungsan, which is the most common name that is used in example sentences, is not a name that people use in real life. Wow. Hmm. wow. So where does that
1: come from? Who, who started this business of using Sun?
2: Oh, Jung-san is okay. I'm not an expert on this at all, but it's it's a way of counting. I think so. Jung-san is like the third, third mm-hmm. son. Oh, so it's like calling someone, you know, John the uh, third, third son of, of the family or something. No one, no one actually is called that.
1: That's fascinating. I did not know because uh, I've I've definitely ha- used those examples because I've taken it from other people's work, <laughs> and I just had no
0: clue that that was just like basically a non-name. That's yeah. horrifying. And I'm thinking about, like, next sounding names. Again, this is all, you know, like, I'm Mexican-American, but my name is Megan. So you might not get that from the name Megan. Um, but I'm thinking, like, Mary, you never see, like, well, you less often see Maria, right? Like, it could be as simple as that, but you just don't see it.
2: So you, you do see it, but mostly you see it in examples um, that are specifically of Spanish. So it's it, it will be much, much less common to see Maria in an example of English data. And there is there is kind of a complication where... So for, for Spanish data, for example, and for a lot of the, the data we see is from Native Americans or Native languages of South America, you get, you know, Maria makes the uh, tortillas and Juan plows the field or mm-hmm. something. That is... To an extent, kind of a thing that you might expect if you were working with native speakers um, of cultures where there are these traditional roles. you, You can't really push and you shouldn't maybe go beyond what the speaker is comfortable with right so i remember a story that someone told me once where they tried something like juan makes the tortillas uh, with a native speaker of some language and and the speaker rejected the sentence and said it was not okay and but it was grammatically well formed but so eventually what what turned out was that you can't say that because juan doesn't make the tortillas yeah. So it's like, you know, if you ask the speaker, can you say this? The speaker is like, no. because, <laughs> But but then eventually it turns out there's no, not because it's not a long-form sentence, but just because it does not describe a situation that actually happens in real life. So you shouldn't, you can't say that.
0: So can we go back to like occupations? Do you still see like men being like janitors and all these things, like jobs that people don't appreciate as much as doctors or whatever, even though it's unfair for men and women still aren't getting these types of?
2: Let me find for you. So we have two different papers. One looks at textbooks and one looks at journal articles. And they have Mm -hmm. different amounts of data. So the textbook Mm -hmm. paper looks at six textbooks, and we sampled 200 examples from each. So Mm -hmm. 1200 example sentences. Right. The paper that looks at journal articles, we got every example sentence that was published in three different journals. Oh, wow. Wow. What journals?
0: um, journals
2: Language? Language. Um, linguistic inquiry and natural language and linguistic theory. Mm-hmm. The textbooks were not published. We're not in which ones. And so the reason mm-hmm. we break this up is that for the textbooks paper, because the numbers are sufficiently small, we just list every predicate that comes up. Oh, that and, and the, the other paper is just like cool. way too much. yeah, yeah, no. so yeah. here's the full list of in 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 the textbooks that we looked at mm-hmm. the full list of occupations that women have, okay. So women can be a student, then there is once to become a woman. Wants mm-hmm. to be appointed president. Um, then there is John believes that she is the best candidate. Then we have a teacher and not a teacher. And then we have <laughs> the Queen of Denmark and the Queen of the United States. Oh, the Queen, queen! of the United States. Of course. Of course queen. queen. Yes. And, and then we let me tell you about the occupations that men have. So men can okay. be students. They can be bakers. They can be professors. Oh, they, uh, doctor, prince, gardener, teacher, not a teacher, manufacturer of tires, chief. Interior minister, captain, a rented restaurant, jeweler, probationary officer, dustman, and fishmonger.
0: Okay, so you're seeing, like, across the spectrum of what we, of what might be called blue-collar and white-collar jobs. Um, And even baker, which maybe had this gendered expectation around it for some people. Men can do all of those things.
2: And Women, women generally are royalty or students or teachers or things that men believe.
0: Right. Even fake royalty that does not exist, like the Queen of well, the
1: USA. <laughs> my, my guess is that was like the, the King of France is bald type example.
2: Yeah, that's my guess. I don't remember the actual sentence, but yes, I think that is probably what it's there for.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay, these are from textbooks. What's the date of the publication of the, like, the newest textbook that you looked at?
2: The newest one we looked at was actually going to be published when we started. we we were in touch with the author from before it was uh, 2017, I think.
0: Oh 2017. Okay.
2: So for that one we were actually able to to give them feedback before it was published about their ratio so that they could make changes.
0: Oh that's very cool.
1: And so is it is it better now? <laughs>
2: um actually I don't know. Oh. But I should actually I should find out.
0: But they were like at, they were part of this process they were interested in making it better
2: yeah so we opened open to these actually there are several um, authors who contacted us when we started to read this were like can you tell me how to do this for my textbook
0: okay okay because they knew of you and your co-authors as people who were looking into this
2: yeah because we'd been doing this for a while and we were uh, presenting this work even before it was published right so right we, we did get authors who were like hey Teaching how to do this. I want to make sure my textbook isn't isn't like this. Okay. Right. And, and one that had an existing textbook that was like, I am due for a new edition. Let me, this is something I can work on.
1: That that that's heartening. Like yeah, as depressing it. as all these examples are, <laughs> right. this makes me have a little glimmer of hope, which is nice.
0: <laughs> right. Right. So you say there's not much of the the they singular, but have you at all consulted with anyone that's trying to add that into their
2: textbook or paper? To their textbook. No. I mean, we consulted with people who work on singular they as the point oh, yeah. of making our recommendations for how to improve, how to do better. So if you read our papers, they say use singular they, um, that comes from talking to part talking to people who work on this. But in terms of textbooks, less so. So I think the most common reaction you get from authors and from teachers is that text that example sentences are not necessarily the place to, to do these things. Okay. Wow. Uh, to which I have reactions, which are like, no, we right. are. So there is, so when I was uh, a student, I remembered one of my teachers saying, when you construct an example sentence, you want to make everything as boring as possible other than the thing that you're interested in.
1: Okay. But then if you have these, like, obviously sexist things, how is that
2: boring? Right. So related to that. So in my training, Mm-hmm. There is a series of names that you so they use them in this particular order. There are John, Mary, Bill and Sue in that order. Mm-hmm. And if you always use these names in that order, then it kind of it becomes boring that John does that. For mm-hmm. example, and also does mean that John is most often the subject and Barry is most often the object. If yes, yeah. are to begin with, but it's very white and, and it has all of the other issues that we talked about. But that's the kind of thing that people were that that I was raised to, to think. And and for me too, you know, when I was teaching, it was a conscious thing I had to overcome. And it's actually really kind of hard. You know? yeah. So I start with John too, very like naturally. Right. So it's, it's a thing you have to consciously overcome. But when I talk to people very often, they will say, you know, while well, I'm trying to illustrate, um, construct state i'm not trying to illustrate social activism and i'm like well you know you don't have to illustrate you just like do it
1: yeah right <laughs> yeah it's not activist to just have uh, women doing normal things in your sentences
2: yeah yeah and you know and so it's it's all in a sense right it's like why why is it john like start from mary or maria or find yourself some other nice names um, from other cultures just to be inclusive right you can do all of these things in single signal without saying words that you're inclusive and that you care about all the students that you have and students that don't show up in your classes because maybe they don't even feel included. But would right. they saw that you tried a bit harder. So I was going to say, and it's actually not very hard. And it's true that it's not very hard, but it is hard in the sense it requires conscious effort and thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Yes. But it's, it's worth the training to, to try to say they you know, singular day if if it doesn't matter if your protagonist is a man or a woman or someone else. And it is good to mix and match. And it's not always John. And it's not always he. It is, it is work, right? It is work because it goes against what we're taught and what's ingrained in us. And some people say, or think, you know, it's, it's not where I want to invest my effort and it's not it's not relevant for what I'm doing, right? So you get that a lot, right? It's just not relevant. It's, not, it's like I'm, I'm teaching linguistics. I'm not being a social warrior.
0: Okay, but with that- It's not that, being a social warrior. It's just we are embodied. I mean, you cannot remove the person and their experiences from how they will react to a sentence. So I'm thinking about, okay, you you both, oh, I have you both here. You do have to create sentences and do these kind of things, you know, when you did research or do research. I don't have that same thing. I do. I have created sentences, but I use like Snoopy or something because it's for little babies. But okay, so what if one of the sentences I'm looking at, I don't know, something grammatical and I say Juan was a doctor in the hospital down the street. What if someone comes to this sentence and I'm looking at predicates or something and they're like, Juan, this is hard for me because I wouldn't assume someone named Juan is a doctor.
2: There is research showing that there is what they call these surprisal effect when mm-hmm. someone or some argument some shows up in an unexpected position. So, mm-hmm. there is a study, the famous and kind of nice study, that does things like this. So, it's a two sentence paradigm. And the first sentence is always has some kind of noun that is not gendered. So, the CEO came into the room. Mm-hmm. And then the second sentence mm-hmm. starts with a pronoun. Right. So it, and then it <laughs> will either say, he, he said, well, good job on making this money this quarter. <laughs> um, All right. That's, that's, you know, people read that and, and, you know, they're kind of happy, but then you have a incredible paradigm and it's, you know, the CEO came into the room. She said, good job on making us, um, money this quarter. And you see a surprising effect and you can see it either in slower reading times or if you do brain imaging, you can see it in, you know, one of these. I, I don't remember if it's an N400. I don't think it is, but you, you see, you see that kind of effect. Right, so it, it is the case that 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 happens. I've I was involved in a study that tried to replicate that um, and correlate that with people's reported attitudes. So we had this hypothesis that if you're more progressive, maybe there's sort less of a reaction, and that wasn't really the case. Making these choices is is a thing that goes against what we're what we're used to. That is oh, yeah, it. doesn't mean you should doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, right? But it is the right, case right. That it is an extra effort that you have to put into your example sentences that you're teaching and your research and all of the other the things that you do. So if, if, you, if you choose to not engage, then you're basically a, affirming the status quo and the status quo has a particular shape to it, which right. you know, is, is not the progressive one most often. And so you are in fact expressing a, a view an opinion, even if you think that you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. yeah.
1: I think that's, that's the thing we really have to hammer home is that mm-hmm. you're not being neutral you are taking a stance. You
0: right. just are trying to pretend you're not. Yes. yes, Carrie, I'm being so sassy about linguists even yesterday during another interview we did. But so many people, syntacticians, and it, and you know on linguist Twitter, I think there's a lot of like syntactician hate, even from not hate, but like being criminalized. <laughs> yeah, but even from syntacticians who are not white men, um, cisgender that. They are actively contributing to this because they'll say, no, we're just we're looking at syntax and that's it. But you can't remove language from people.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like you're trying to narrow the number of factors that are impacting the sentence as you can. And I understand that. But you can't like completely divorce it. It's not just math. Suddenly, it's not just a bunch mm-hmm. of like. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not just algebra like it really is still no matter how many factors we try to reduce it down to there's still the human factor in there so we just have to admit that mm-hmm. <laughs> right but yeah no.
0: right i wonder if you did if did you break up the the data at all in a way to see if gender representation is getting better
2: over the years yeah so for the the paper that dealt with example sentences in journals because we, we again we had so much data we looked at every example sentence that was published in every paper over 20 years in three journals that's a lot of data yeah so yeah. we could plot that over time and we could ask whether there's an improvement okay so there are two graphs I wonder if I can share with you because I'm kind of curious about your reaction to them
0: I like interviews where I can just be enraged the whole time. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm sharing my screen. I'm so here's okay. my graph. This is this is a graph that describes the proportion of female arguments over time. When the ratios go from they're in the point three range, more or less, but but you no know, usually things. So
0: men yeah. are represented three times more. Is that the ratio? Not, no, it's
1: like it's thirty percent, seventy percent ish, right? Oh, so seventy percent are men.
2: Oh, so it goes from thirty to like three, three 34. maybe <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, so over twenty years, we went from point three-ish to point three three-ish. But it's also interesting to ask about how it changes, how it differs between subjects and non-subjects. So, okay, now we are looking at two graphs that pull out the data that we were just describing into subjects and non-subjects.
0: So it's getting worse. Yeah, so women are the thing being acted upon
2: more. So what we see is that it's in subject positions, actually, there are um, probably fewer female arguments of women. And uh-huh. in object positions, we see the opposite. We see an increase. So more okay. women in object positions over time. So the overall increase that we saw in the overall graph really is represented, is the main contributor is more women in non-subject positions, so being op- acted upon. This is
1: horrifying to me somehow like the first of all the fact that it was there was barely a change at all I think you said it was something like five percent in one of the Uh papers which is nothing basically that's barely anything at all and then (laughs) that was bad enough and now I look at this and I am enraged that the situation in some ways has actually gotten worse because yeah women are
0: are in these roles where they're being acted upon rather than acting (laughs) There's no agency, Ah! (laughs) but the agency for women has gotten worse between 2000 and 2015.
1: Who who can I hurt about this? This is just... Who's... Where's the manager? (laughs) Who's the manager of linguistics? (laughs) I would like to lodge a
0: complaint, yes. Well, okay. So this is... I, like, want to laugh and cry at the same time, but I'm thinking about how, like, it is really disempowering to see women being um, represented as the one without agency over and over and over again this keeps reinforcing these ideas that
2: women aren't the ones that do that it's it's really harmful yep and we' still tell like you that the- men are afraid of me and when they say afraid of me what they mean guys that is that I, I speak my mind and they say, right. yeah 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 and so people are afraid of me and I'm like that's too bad I mean good, good for you too bad for you good when it first started happening I'd be like why and they'd be like well because you, you say the names and I'm like okay. I mean, am I not supposed to end a public opinion? Like what's what's that about? Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I've been called a feminazi in, in my time because I have spoken my mind. There's nothing you can really do about it. Either you become more of a passive woman,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which I neither of us want to do that, or you just are like, okay,
0: fine. Or you're scared of me. Good.
2: <laughs> and that's that's really our problem. I
0: Yeah, really it's it's a <laughs> yes, it's this is scary. Not a me problem. This seems to be a you problem. It is. Yeah. It is it
1: is a them problem. It's definitely not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, it just goes um, back to how we've talked about before on the podcast. One of our first episodes, maybe our first episode, Carrie, where we're talking about words like shrill and bitchy and all of these things are associated with women when women speak their mind. Well, it that's not even like I say speak their like when women speak their mind, but it's like it's not called that when men say things. <laughs> you know, like men are speaking their mind. It's just being a person and actually saying what you mean, yeah, and yeah.
1: just asking for things, yeah, like, simply just asking for like this this to me in some way it seems like a I mean, I know you're right, it takes effort, but it still kind of feels like a minor change to be asking people like just be more mindful of your of your example sentences, consider consider your audience <laughs> like and and consider the fact that you could be you know just like feeding into the already existing patriarchy. So in this case, we're just focusing on gender here. So you're fitting into the patriarchy. Like, that's not great. And if you're okay with that, then it tells me who you are. And to me, I think the thing that also makes this even more horrifying is, like, yes, syntax and semantics are, you know, probably more male-dominated than other uh, parts of the field, but linguistics as a whole is... You know, has a lot of women in it, a lot mm-hmm. of women, and we're still seeing this happen.
0: Well, you got to ask yourself, is it related? Why there's so few women in syntax and semantics? It <coughs>
2: and related to that, what I'm just going to say is, if so you're teaching, think about who your students are. And students in linguistics tend to be, to skew very white, very mm-hmm. non. So I've taught whole classes that had not a single non-white person in them. Wow, really? And, well, I mean, I, I've taught in particular institutions that uh, lend themselves more to that, perhaps. But regardless, if you're a Black student or a Latinx student, and if there is no one else in the class that looks like you, your instructors don't look like you, and the example sentences don't sound like they're welcoming you, and, you know, it, and the things that you read are, have a particular bent to them, a of that contributes together to this feeling that you're not welcome people pick up on that extremely quickly and they will just not continue and we we, everyone knows that there's this issue right where probably even more than there is a woman problem there is a white problem
0: Mm -hmm. yeah there definitely is yes percent. but i'm just thinking about how class ideals come up in these sentences too where i would read something and i'd be like this is just like not meshing with how i understand the world to be like, you know, talking about how like kids have, you know, elaborate play sets in their backyard or even just this kind of stuff, it's like it can be a class issue too.
2: That is something that we could actually look at and quantify uh-huh. and study. And then there are things that are much harder to study or that are just not represented so that the data isn't there. So in, in terms of race, for example, there isn't there isn't an obvious way of studying race representation in these example sentences because generally you'll just say, you know, it's just no one's thinking about that. That's not a thing that is represented at all.
1: Yes, there are names that are more, like, associated with certain races, but it's not one-to-one. It's even more trickier, I think, than gender. And I think also, like, the fact that this is f- focusing on gender, where we would expect things to be better than race for a variety of reasons. There's more women. It's whiter. And so we expect the gender problem—sorry, the race problem, we, but we don't expect the gender problem. And here it is— <laughs> Like just showing its head and it's really bad. So just imagine how much worse it would be if we actually looked at all these other things that can, yeah, we can be discriminated against for.
0: Yeah. And I said that the egregious examples are like gone, but look how egregious it is if women, you know, being subjects has actually gone down. And yeah. Still like, what is it? it? So it's below 30% then?
2: It's about 30%, maybe 33%.
0: As subjects? Like
2: that. It's a two, yeah. two to one more or less ratio, right? So for right. every two men, there'll be one woman-ish.
0: That's egregious. <laughs> yeah, so, yes.
2: Know. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And it's, of course, there, maybe this is the time to say, you know, we're looking at example sentences and that's a particular genre, it's a particular part of the field. Yeah. But it's not like, you know, we're not, we don't have issues and, you know, sexist or racist in other parts of our lives, right? So mm-hmm. who... You know, how we construct our example sentences has a correlation with who we cite, for example, and who we invite to present at our conferences, and who we shortlist, and who we hire, who become teachers, right, who, who, who continue to use these example sentences. So it all kind of ties in. There is a particular way that example sentences make it easier to see, but it's not, it's not contained only within example sentences. It has no impact outside and I think that's important to keep in mind when, when you think about that, too.
1: Yeah, I think it just, like, is a reflection. It's like a mirror up to our field of, like, what's actually going on. Because if things were better, then the example sentences would at least have improved more than
0: 5% and not gotten worse on women being objects as opposed to. I'm thinking about how when I was in a classroom, I'd have to think of sentences, like, on the fly. So there are there are different times of you know instructors and professors and teachers that have to make sentences. What are ways that we can be better?
2: You're right that maybe a lot of the time when we specifically when we teach, mm-hmm. we don't always use handouts or example or textbooks. We actually make things up on the fly. So mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of a bigger issue than just what's written down and it's. Mm-hmm. Formal materials. Honestly, one of the best things that anyone can do is just be conscious and be aware and to make choices with these issues in mind. And that is both easy and hard. It's it's easy because we kind of we know what we need to do, and it's not it's not complicated, right? When we say make sure that your example sentences are varied in various ways, so that there are non med in subject positions, and that the the predicates that you use are diverse and varied, so that women have occupations that are diverse and some that maybe there is no violence necessary at all. Like there, it doesn't need to be hidden, right? So maybe like replace your hitting examples with something else. Also, by the way, not, you know, non-consensual kissing, like that's also not okay. So when, when you have think about that, right, maybe that's a little difficult. So think about what your transitive predicates are that don't involve any violence or any, you know, Physical touch that is not welcomed, I guess. Use singular they, right? Those kinds of things. Or don't use anything that's gendered at all if you don't need to, because it's just not relevant. Or maybe choose names that are more inclusive. So have at your disposal ahead of time a set of names that you're going to use that is more inclusive and more diverse than you might use to. So so all of that is kind of maybe maybe not hard in the sense that we can think of those things. It's obvious what some of the things are that, that we can do. It's also really hard because it is isn't green in us to do things a certain way. So again, for me, it's like John, Barry, Bell and Sue, in that order, like always. And getting out of that Same. is maybe even possible. It's really hard. And so what I found myself doing when I was teaching is I would think up an example sentence and I would start writing on the board, John, and then I would, I, I would do this. I would stop and I would embrace John from the board and I would actually explain to the class that I'm doing this because I do not want to talk about Johnny, or John is overrepresented and he's all the time. I want more inclusive example sentences. But I do fall into this order of things that I've been taught. And so I am, I am going to consciously make a decision that whenever I, I say John, I going to like erase that and start over. And so that's what I'm doing. And I actually explained that. It takes 30 seconds out of my teaching, but I think it's a good 30 seconds. It's a
0: really good 30 seconds. I love it.
1: It's really good advice. Yeah. I will say I came across the transitive verb problem very early on because I was I was looking at passivization I think. And it's tricky to find really good transitive verbs that are not violent because like it, when they're not violent it's very easy for them to become less transitive. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 actually not an easy problem. I, I do think people should think about it and like try to find the verbs in whatever language they're looking at that actually are nonviolent and still transitive. But it's not like super easy.
2: <laughs> but also like I've I've seen cases so we do field methods classes, right? Where you have a speaker and students go around asking the speaker to say things. And a lot of the times, I've seen people use the, sp- the speaker's name in example sentences, mm-hmm. right? So, if your speaker's name is uh, is Maria, then you might you might have the speaker say things like Maria makes with tea, or something. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then I see people being like, telling her, uh, you know, say Juan hits Maria. No, it's not okay. Or, you know, Quentin hates Marie or like all kinds of like having the speaker say out loud things that, that may trigger them in some way because it's it's describing violence or it's describing negative emotions or just like, and even if it's not that situation, just having in, in your class a situation where you describe, you know, the man hit the wong or the man kicked the boy or mm-hmm. the man kicked, kissed, killed, whatever, the woman. like th- Those are kind of traditional example sentences. None of that is good, and and maybe it's hard. That's true, and in some cases maybe you're forced into these high context transitive verbs, and and it's unavoidable. Most of the time, though, it's probably not required for most of what you need to do.
1: Yeah, there's almost always an- another thing you could use. Yes, for sure.
2: You know,
0: so do you think that a good piece of advice would be that outside of the classroom, think about how you're going to address these things, like just have some strategies.
2: I think so. Yeah. So so prepare your your names that you're going to use. Think about the predicates that you're going to use. Yeah, come, come ready with, with some of these. If if you are in a context where you need to make some particular elaborate context, think about that ahead of time. Fewer semantics.
0: Right. The
1: other the other thing that this always reminds me of, and again, it's not about gender. This is about about race. But all, a lot of the old examples in like languages of North America literature were about yeah violence or or drinking you know drunk being drunk and all that kind of stuff and at least in my experience that stuff was no longer acceptable by the time I started so but it was always there in my head that oh We've got to be careful about this stuff. And yet, I bet I still have done all kinds of stuff. Like, I know the John Mary Sue stuff. Definitely. I definitely did that in class. I even noticed it as I was doing it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't do what you did, which was stop and erase. I should have done that.
2: There is a related issue that sometimes comes up, which is occasionally work with data from grammars that you, from speakers of languages you don't have access to. Just work with examples Mm -hmm. that other people have listed on occasion from languages that do not have speakers anymore. There is a famous case of that um, where one of the only examples of a transitive sentence you have is something like father hit mother with a stick, something like that. Mm. Um, and so you have to use it. And in that case, if that's what you're trying to illustrate, then they say, okay, use it. That's what you have. But most of the time, you can do better, right? Yeah, um, right? And likewise, you can say something like, there may be f- famous examples that are offensive in various ways. You don't have to cite them. You can just say following an XYZ and get the citation, but you, you can make up your yeah. example if it's a language speaker. Yeah. So that's uh, another thing to do.
0: And even yes, when definitely. you do okay, the, the language no longer has speakers and it has that offensive example, you could in your paper say that exact thing. Just like how you while teaching erase John and tell the students what you're doing. It could be worth just saying in your article that I'm using this this example, even though it is, you know, whatever. Just reading things like this in art, in articles, I think, is a good way to reinforce the idea.
2: So related to that, if you're, you know, if you're a conference organizer, you can think about who we're inviting mm. to speak. Also, you, who you're inviting to be a reviewer, for example. You can think about, you know, if you're an editor, you could likewise think about whether the papers that you're looking at have these issues that we're discussing If you happen to be, so lucky to be on a search committee, actually thinking about who you are interviewing and who you're passing on and not interviewing Mm -hmm. and who you're hiring eventually is a big thing. If you're teaching, if you you can think about who is in your classroom and who is not in your classroom.
0: Yeah. And even if the people that they aren't there, it doesn't mean that your sentences can still be
2: (laughs) bad sentences. Your your students have roommates and they have friends and uh, they will see your materials too. I I know that that's happened, that I've had students who came to my classes because they saw some materials from their friends, like that's a thing that happens. Yeah. So you do have a broader reach, but only because for your classroom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that you have an all-white class, unless you're at a particular school, but about schools, if you have an all-white class, that probably should tell you something about you (laughs) and maybe you can make some adjustments so that going forward, that's not the case.
2: Right. I might also tell you about who's previously taught the class and who in the department more generally. Right. right.
1: If you're the first, if that's yeah. your first time teaching the class, yeah, that has nothing to yeah. do with you. Yeah. But I just mean if it's your regular class that you're teaching and yeah, the people are all white, that's
2: something to ponder. Similarly, if all of your advisees are white men,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this is this is the shadiest that
0: we've been, <laughs> and I love it. I know. <laughs> I know. Like I said, I'm glad this this whole thing is just me being outraged. So languages, which is where these articles are, is the paper of the Linguistic Society of America. And there is a committee on gender equity, right, in linguistics. And you are now the chair.
2: Yes, I'm the incoming chair of the committee on gender equity and linguistics. And what does that mean? This committee used to be called Coswell, the Committee on uh, the Status of Women in Linguistics. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the oldest and most productive committees of the LSA. Just last year, we rebranded as the Committee on Gender Equity in Linguistics because we want to be more inclusive. And so we are one of the more productive committees um, of the LSA. We do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Everyone can join. It's a free, open committee. So anyone who is a student or who is non-permanent faculty member or who is a faculty member who has been around for decades or who is not even an academic like me, and no longer an academic, everyone can join the committee. We try to pick up um, some number of projects every year and um, run with them. The uh, textbook paper actually is written entirely by COGL members and started as kind of being from a discussion um, at one of our committee meetings. But so some other things that we do. So we, we do, we care about mentoring a lot. So we have a, a committee that is dedicated to what we call pop-up mentoring. So okay. that's an event that travels around to different conferences and is a one-time, no-strings-attached event where you can talk to some person, a mentor or a mentee. So if you sign up to be a mentor, you will talk to even T and vice versa, if you sign up as an you'll um, talk to an mentor about some topic of interest. And we try to pair, a, we do pairing uh, manually, so we actually kind of look at what everyone says that they would like to talk about. And it's a very interesting opportunity. So you get to meet with someone who you would otherwise probably not meet and not have a conversation with. And you get to have this outside perspective, so someone can tell you about how things happen at their institution. And you can ask questions that maybe you don't feel comfortable asking your uh, your direct superiors and advisors who continue to work with you. So okay. it's been my experience very often that I learn about what my students care about and what my um, what my students may want to know that they would not ask me in a regular context. So I hear about it from students from other institutions. So that's been that's been going around for several years, and I think has been very successful. And everyone is invited. You can be a man, a woman, a non-binary person. You can be whatever, anything. Enjoy and it doesn't it's not only for women, both as mentors and as mentees. What else do we do? We have wiki editathons, we do a lot of those. Pretty- those are good, yeah.
0: Because <laughs> women are underrepresented, right?
2: Massively underrepresented in, in Wikipedia articles. Yeah. So I guess this no, is an yeah. invitation for everyone to join who's interested.
0: It's very good stuff. Yeah. It's actually because of um that, like Wikithon kind of thing from uh, LSA meeting. That I added my own mentor and that boss to Wikipedia because she wasn't on there, and I was just like, "What
2: is she's yeah. still
0: there?" Because it's the one problem I have with uh, the
1: Wikipedia
2: thing is that those get, they get deleted. Yes, so that what? is if you if you do get involved in doing a Wikipedia editing, you learn very quickly that there is there is gatekeeping. So most of the editors of Wikipedia are men, uh, and. So, your article about a woman might easily get flagged as not significant or not, not noteworthy and get deleted. Mm. That is a thing that happens. Wow. Luckily, it's still there. Keep a draft of what you've done because things get deleted. It's a fight. Like, if you want to make sure that things stay, you, you need to get involved and fight for your article.
0: Oh, well, I'm so glad it's there. We'll talk to her, Luanne Girkin and she is like, so key in child and language development that it was horrifying that she's not there that i would be the one to come in in the late you know the 2018 or something i think when i added her is horrifying to me but i am sure she's not the only one as you're saying so yeah go, go to wikipedia and see what women are on there that you think should be
2: yes PDI is a particular uh, skill because you, you need to it approach is. it in a particular way. There are certain yeah. criteria for being noteworthy. Then you need to know these things. And, you know, if you just jump in and, and write something, you know, random, it probably knows. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I remember the process, like, having to prove that this is noteworthy. And it's like, well, she has a behold-ass book on it. <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. But,
1: yeah. Thank you so, so yeah. much. This has been so much fun. I know. And I talked to yeah, you forever. <laughs> I hope that the linguist listeners think more carefully and also join Coggle. Yes. And uh, non-linguist listeners, I hope that this kind of technical discussion was interesting and just shows that, you know, yeah. linguists have a long way to go. It's not right. just everybody else. It's all of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we always leave our listeners with one final
2: message. Don't, Don't be, an be an asshole. asshole. But thank you for having me. It's been a our of
1: Okay, so this month, we would like to thank our newest
0: patron, Audra Barnes. Yay, thank you so much. I I love our patrons.
1: (laughs) Me too. And again, (laughs) if you want to become a patron, you can join at www.patreon.com slash vocal fries pod. And we've got stickers, and we've got bonus episodes, and we've got mugs. The Vocal Fries Podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio music by Nick Granum. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VocalFriesPod. You can email us at VocalFriesPod at gmail.com, and our website is VocalFriesPod.com.